Red Salute, welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifestoringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page, just search for Manifestoring Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Hey comrades, welcome back to the Red Spark Wrap-Up. On this episode, I'm going to be covering a series of articles concerning Brazil, including the 500-year history of struggle for land in the country, the current state of the revolutionary forces, COVID-19's impact, and more. As always, if you want to talk to me, the best place to find me is on Twitter at ManifestPod. So without further ado, let's get to the Red Spark Wrap-Up. From the Quilombos to the Poor Peasants League, the 500-year history of struggle for land in Brazil. Since Brazil is the site of the first slave uprising in Latin America, with the Quilombo Rebellion that began in the 16th century and has had a history of uninterrupted struggles since then against colonialism and today, imperialism, it would be logical that the history of the revolutionary movement would be well covered by books, articles, and studies. But while the old struggles have been analyzed and even co-opted by the government of the opportunist phony left that governed Brazil for almost 14 years, from 2003 until 2016, it is hard to find information on the struggles of the revolutionary forces today. This article is the first of a series of articles that aims at giving more insight into the revolutionary movement that has, since 1995, struggled against imperialist aggression, successive shift of governments, a government that portrays itself as quote leftist unquote and quote pro-people unquote, but actually continued acting on behalf of its imperialist lords, including massacring peasants and the current government of the fascist Bolsonaro. 1. From Colonization to 1995 To have a better understanding of the struggle for land in Brazil, it is necessary to first see it in the context of Portugal's colonization in 1500, which lasted officially until 1822, when a formal policy of a mere separation from the Kingdom of Portugal, as the Empire of Brazil, and under the semi-colonial yoke of England took place. In reality, the ownership of the land remained the same as during colonial times, concentrated in the hands of a small minority. Less than 2% of the population that owns land, called the Latifundio, possess 50% of the land, while 90% of landowners, who are peasants, possess less than 20% of the land. 5 million peasant families do not have any land, despite several quote to land informs unquote, that were supposedly carried out or promised by different governments. The first rebellion to reclaim the right to land was led by communities of escaped African slaves called the Quilombos, meaning war camps. There have been many Quilombo rebellions since the very beginning of the Portuguese colonization, but their numerical and military weakness compared to the colonizers put them in a defensive position. Quilombo dos Palmeiras, in the northeast of the country, the most important of them lasted a hundred years, resisting several campaigns of encirclement and finally succumbed in 1694. Thus, the land they were forced to seek was difficult to access and isolated, and it was impossible to seize large tracts of land. This situation made them de facto poor peasants. Furthermore, with the end of slavery in 1888, the masses of former slaves, left to their own chances, entered the deep, unexplored zones of the country, where they established communities, many of which remain until today and have kept struggling for the ownership of their territory. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, There was a series of so-called messianic revolts, so named because their main leaders were pious preachers who gave a deeply religious character to their movements. 
This is the case for the Canudos Revolt in the northeastern part of the country, led by Antonio Consolero, which lasted for around 30 years, 1867 to 1897. They faced three military campaigns in what is considered until today the, quote, deadliest civil war, unquote, in Brazilian history. In addition, the War of Contestado from 1912 to 1916 in the South was one of the biggest peasant wars in South America. All of the struggles had as their main goal land for the tillers, and all of them were bloodily repressed by the colonial repressive forces and, since independence, by the Brazilian army. The struggle for land intensified in the 1940s with a series of spontaneous upsurges and land seizures, inspired on the one hand by the armed uprising of November 1935, led by the Communist Party of Brazil, PCB, and on the other hand by the end of the Vargas military regime, 1930-1945. The PCB-led movements, organizing peasant associations and the peasant leagues, mainly between 1948 and 1954. In 1953, after a process of uniting the different unions of rural workers and poor peasants, it achieved its first national conference of the Agricultural Workers and Poor Peasants, which created the ULTAB, Union of Peasants and Agricultural Workers of Brazil. PCB leadership over the peasant movement gave it a more defined political character by providing a clear political line, the necessity of agrarian reform, and showing a clear path to reach this goal, armed struggle, symbolized by the struggle of Porca II, during which over 300 families occupied 4,000 hectares of land. The peasants defended their seized land by organizing armed militias that initially had a defensive role, but as the struggle intensified, initiated tactical offenses against the Latifundio and their gunmen. The example of Porca II inspired many other armed occupations, such as the ones of the south of Bahia, and the ones from the Triangulo Minero of Trombas and Formoso. The peasants organized themselves into militant leagues and their struggle became a reference point for armed movements all over Latin America. The growth of the movement was halted by two events. One, the appointment of João Goulart, a social democrat representative of the national bourgeoisie and defender of quote-based reforms, unquote, as the labor minister, and later his election as president of Brazil. He co-opted the majority of the unions and mass organizations and opposed the peasant movement. The movement, with the flag of, quote, agrarian reform by law or by force, unquote, persisted with its armed resistance in spite of the promise of a series of progressive reforms, such as increasing the minimum wage by 100% and vague promises of a land reform. And two, a new shift to the right in the PCB leadership, allowing the reformist line contrary to the armed struggle to prevail. Embracing Khrushchev's line soon after 1956, the line led the party to abandon the peasant leagues and centered the struggle for land in the legal struggle and demands to successive populist governments for an agrarian reform. Rejecting the alliance of struggle it made with the peasants through arms as a left opportunist deviation. This led to an internal split of the party with Khrushchevist revisionism, for the general reorganization of the party as PCDOB, and for the armed struggle as People's War, adopting Mao Zedong thought. Thus, the leagues were still led by communists and other forces of the left influenced by the Cuban Revolution. Their continued growth became so problematic for the imperialist interests controlling Brazil that it fomented a military coup in 1964. The newly installed fascist military regime's first act was to ban all of the peasant leagues and repress them, leading to a bloody massacre of their leaders and masses. The military regime was effective in its repression. The Araguaia guerrilla in Para Eastern Amazonia a region of vast tropical Amazon forests that covers more than 60% of the 8.5 million kilometers of the Brazilian territory, although a great part of the forest has been devastated. Where the reorganized Communist Party struggled together with the peasants to carry out the People's War was defeated after three years of resistance. 
the struggle for land became disorganized, and only when the regime started to weaken at the end of the 70s did new organizations appear again, some led by more liberal priests of the Catholic Church. In 1985, the Landless Workers' Movement, MST, was founded, and in 1995, the Workers' and Peasants' League is founded but quickly separated into the Workers' League and the Poor Peasants' League. 2. The Resistance of the Kurumbiara and the Battle of Santa Elena When the necessity of the military regime waned and its rule was completely ended in 1985, the bourgeoisie presented it as a, quote, return of the democracy, unquote, that would give back total freedom of speech and freedom of association. This situation allowed peasants to form the Landless Workers' Movement, MST, which aimed to continue the struggle of the Peasants' Leagues for agrarian reform. In the meantime, the Workers' Party, PT, a social democratic party founded in 1982, portrayed itself as a defender of worker and peasant rights, a role they had undertaken since the early 1980s. With the end of the social imperialist USSR and the fall of the Berlin Wall, the opportunists let their false mass of Marxism fall and centered their struggle in the corrupt elections of the country. The majority of the leadership of the MST hoped for the PT's success in the elections and believed that the possibility of agrarian reform would follow. While this contradiction was discussed and debated in the first decade of the MST, the situation in Rondonia showed the contradiction's irreconcilable character and drew a line of demarcation between opportunists and revolutionaries. The state of Rondonia, located in the western part of the Amazonian forest, had seen a growing migration of landless peasants since the 60s with the promises of being given property titles to land they deforested. In reality, the latifundio who supposedly legally owned the property often used the peasants as free labor to work their land, and once it was deforested, used their gunmen to kill or expel them. In many cases, peasants resisted the latifundio, but the latifundio's strength and the collaboration of the police, as well as the corruption of the local politicians, meant that those spontaneous rebellions were repressed with unpublicized massacres and genocide. The local chapter of MST in Rondonia saw the contradictions between its two factions intensify. While the revolutionaries called for broad mobilizations and a higher level of organization and combativity, the opportunists refused to act. Under the pretext that the governors of the state, Valdir Raup, was an ally of the PT, they claimed that acting against him could damage this alliance and prevent the PT from winning the next elections that would anyway, quote, solve everything, unquote, as the PT promised land reform after reaching power. In July 1995, some 600 families mobilized by the dissident leadership of the MST seized 18,000 hectares of land in Santa Elena, Latifundio, in the municipality of Curumbiara. The seized land was distributed equally among the families, and they began to construct houses. The, quote, support, unquote, that the opportunists in the MST gave the struggle was to plead with the government to intervene in order to propose a, quote, political solution, unquote, that would satisfy both the peasants and the Latifundio. Indeed, at the end of July, a delegation of different governmental institutions went to propose relocating the 600 families to a different 500 hectares, an unacceptable proposition, given that at least one half hectare of land is required to grow food under optimal conditions to sustain one person per year. This proposed, quote, solution, unquote, was actually a stab in the back to the masses. At the same time, the MST leadership gave the names of the leaders that headed the occupation of Santa Elena, Latifundio, to the state. The refusal of this poison carriage brought the stick of repression. Less than a week afterwards, on August 9th, the Latifundists sent their gunmen with the support of police to evict the peasants. What is broadly known as the Massacre of Kurumbiara, revolutionaries called the Battle of Santa Elena. The peasants were not passively massacred, because they were armed, including with a limited number of guns, 
and the lands were defended with these guns, machetes, sickles, traps, and homemade bombs. They paid a price for their resistance. Sixteen were killed, among whom young Vanessa, seven years old, was executed in cold blood by a policeman. Seven were disappeared, and over 200 were seriously injured by gunshots and stick and machete hits, with hundreds of men, women, and elderly who were tortured during a whole day after surrendering. The Battle of Santa Elena was the moment of rupture in which the revolutionaries realized the necessity of the split with the leadership of the MST, as they saw the passivity, or in this context even the role of demoralization slash demobilization of its leadership, was an obstacle in forming an organization that would truly be able to struggle for agrarian reform. The organization that emerged six months after the bloody Battle of Santa Elena was founded on February 25, 1996, under the name Kurumbiara Peasant Movement, MCC. Its first goal was to support the families of the combatants who fell in Santa Elena and the many who were wounded with bullets still in their bodies and to avenge them by reseizing those lands. Within the MCC, another line struggle appeared. While the majority supported the necessity of agrarian reform through revolutionary violence, a minority was slowly won to more, quote, moderate, unquote, positions. Lula, the PT's presidential candidate, was known by the peasants because he appeared during the Santa Elena resistance to make promises to support them and their demands if he was elected. While the PT already proved by its non-interference any massacre perpetrated with the complicity of their political allies, and they were not on the side of the peasants, a minority still followed those false promises. 3. The League of Poor Peasants Struggle in the Time of Lula the limitations of the MCC as a regional organization were quickly identified as the Battle of Santa Elena inspired struggles in other Brazilian states. This was particularly the case in the north of Minas in the state of Minas Gerais, where families of peasants were organizing themselves and seizing lands under the leadership of the Workers and Peasants League. Together with the MCC, they formed a structure called Peasant Commissions of Struggle, CCL, which aimed to define a clear political line in order to form a nationwide organization. While at that time there were several organizations that already played the role of a nationwide peasant organization, the CCL saw them as being opportunistic and or having a very limited perspective. Their main concern was only to achieve, quote, agrarian reform, unquote, within the boundaries of the old state, which was in the hands of landlords and big bourgeoisie. However, the CCL believed that the peasant movement needed to struggle for agrarian revolution, meaning the total destruction of the latifundio which would only be possible through a peasant workers' alliance that would not only transform the countryside, but the whole Brazilian society. This was the line synthesized by the document Nasso Camino, Our Path, on which the League of Poor Peasants LCP was founded in April 2000. At its first congress, it established five chapters of the League in different states and initiated contact in other states with groups of peasants that were occupying lands, and there was an uprising of spontaneous land occupation slash seizure all over Brazil during that time. The question of the land in Brazil became more and more of a hot topic in those years, both because the country was facing an economic crisis, as it was deeply impacted by the 1997 Asian financial crisis, but also because of the increase of agribusiness in the country, from 18,000 in 1994 to 47,000 in 2001. Those companies were rapidly buying land from the Latifundio, which in many cases were occupied by poor peasants who were then evicted. Those two factors increased the poverty of the people and fueled their anger. As the people's anger and spontaneous land occupations increased, it started to threaten the imperialist interests and present the possibility of a revolution. The situation was also not favorable to a military coup, which could have brought the country to a state of civil war. The government of the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party, which had ruled the country since the end of the military regime, 
was unable to solve this political crisis. While the PT had been running in the elections on the promise of a land reform and transition to a socialist economy, its leader, Lula, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, a former union leader who became popular because of his radical speeches when the military regime was falling at the end of the 70s, proved to foreign investors that he wouldn't endanger their interests by signing a public letter in 2002. The letter stated that he wouldn't change Brazil's economic policy, nor cancel any of its unequal international treaties. Unsurprisingly, Lula won those elections with the unfortunate support of all quote communist unquote parties of the country that daydreamed about the possibility of radicalizing from within the PT and its future government. Once elected, Lula launched a program called the National Program for Agrarian Reform II, purported to grant land titles to half a million poor peasants. This program was never implemented and became less and less of a priority, with the rationale that it would be done, quote, when the time was right, unquote. In the meantime, Lula said that the country was, quote, big enough, unquote, for both agribusiness and poor peasants, and that they should make peace with each other. And to opportunists such as the leadership of the MST, who engaged in nonviolent demonstrations appealing to the president to honor his promises, the PT leadership's answer was, quote, be patient, unquote. The LCP and poor peasants all over Brazil continued to seize and occupy lands, and they paid a price for their struggle. In the first year of Lula's presidency, 73 peasants were murdered, double the number of the previous government. There were 292 murders between 1995 and 2002, an average of 36 per year. Besides the intensification of the killing of peasant leaders, the state initiated a psychological war to break the unity of the poor peasants. For example, in 2003, Lula issued a presidential decree that defined legal criteria of, quote, quilombos, unquote. Other legal definitions followed, dictating who legally qualified as a landless peasant, who was indigenous, etc. These different identities granted specific groups of people legal rights to claim some lands, and local authorities used them to create conflicts between the different communities, for example, by saying to quilombos that adjacent poor peasant villages were settled on lands that they could claim. The peasants were told that they did not need to struggle, that it was enough to simply register, leading to the absurd situation where Brazil has more lands registered than its total land mass, as the Latifundio do not unregister the lands that poor peasants register as theirs. These actions gave hope to some that this was the beginning of a more equal division of land, but the reality is that the Latifundio have only seen an increase of their landholding, as the government has allowed them to use legally public lands through the Terra Legal program on the premise that it would help the Brazilian economy to grow. In reality, the program advanced destructive forms of land exploitation, such as a rapid deforestation of Amazonia, and the devastating practice of cash crop eucalyptus cultivation, sugarcane, cattle, and mining. 4. Intensification of the Peasants' Movement Since 2013 Lula served two terms and was replaced in 2011 by another PT figure, Dilma Rousseff. She played the role of successor, continuing the same politics of support to agribusiness and monoculture for export, i.e. plundering of the country resources for imperialist profit, that Lula initiated. During her term, the peasant movement intensified, particularly after the Watershed 2000 protests that gripped the country. Several leaders of the LCP were murdered. In 2012, Hanato Nathan was murdered in the state of Pondonia. And in 2014, Cleomar Rodriguez, a leader in the region of Norte de Minas, was assassinated at the gates of a revolutionary area that he helped organize, and where he had been living and working since 2008. The impeachment of Husef in 2016, a consequence of her involvement in corruption scandals, created a situation in the country where the dominant classes became divided. 
With the economic crisis that was both national and international threatening their interests, they saw that the masses lost their confidence in the PT because it proved unable to solve the most basic issues of the people, such as carrying out land reform. Indeed, the 13 years of the opportunist governments of PT were years of betrayal of the peasants and other workers. No agrarian reform was promoted. On the contrary, the repression to the revolutionary peasant movement was greater than the previous governments. As for the leaders of the MST, they simply reached the bourgeois landlord state's bureaucracy. With this, the leadership of the MST gradually abandoned the struggle against a lot of fundio, centering in the defense of agroecology and the denunciation of the foreign giants that produce agrotoxins and transgenic seeds, tractors and machinery, under the banner of a supposed people's agrarian reform. The MST leadership not only abandoned the tactics of occupation, but started to attack the revolutionary peasant movement. They colluded and were complicit in murdering the leaders and masses. They were part of the task force of political police and repressive forces and other organs of the old state, despite opportunist mass organizations promoting the Operation Peace of the Countryside, which was responsible for persecutions, arrests, and elimination of social fighters. And this growing lack of confidence in both the PT and its number one promoter, the MST leadership, led to an increased abstention, not showing up, nor blank votes, in spite of voting being mandatory in Brazil. In the last elections in 2018, many people turned towards the far right to express their anger at the situation, including against the policies and consequences of opportunism. Those two factors resulted in the election of the fascist Bolsonaro by only 30% of the people eligible to vote. Bolsonaro had 57 million votes, Haddad PT 46 million, and the boycott had 57 million people in what was the most boycotted election in the history of Brazil. Since 1995, the revolutionary peasant movement has called for the election's boycott, and since its founding, the LCP has called to boycott the elections. Today, the opportunists are saying that Brazil is now a fascist state, and that the only political intervention possible is to call to free Lula, who was imprisoned from 2017 until mid-2019, convicted of corruption and money laundering. But the League continues to advance their line of destroying Latifundio, seizing land by land, step by step, and declares that it is not possible to further advance the struggle for land anymore without re-editing the sacred and historical peasant war through a correct and justified revolutionary strategy and political line. For this, they defend and declare the necessity of increasing the number of militant mobilizations to resist the evictions and continue to seize even more land. The LCP is laying the basis for building new power in the countryside of Brazil. May 9, 2020 Our previous article described the history of the peasant struggle for land in Brazil. Since 1995, that struggle for land has been divided onto two distinct roads, the one of opportunists, meaning the organizations that adopted a passive posture, waiting for the government or foreign NGO to solve the land issue for them, and the one of revolutionaries, who took their destiny in their own hands and boycotted elections and the sham, quote, democracy, unquote, and organized to build the basis of new power. This article will focus on the current situation, on the objective and subjective conditions, and will shed some light on some of the LCP's achievements. 1. What is the land situation today in Brazil? Who owns the land in Brazil? From the 1500 colonization of Brazil to the former political independence of 1822, land in Brazil was the property of the Portuguese king, who gave some noble families the right to occupy and exploit it. Quote, independence, unquote, made these concessions legal rights of property, and the ruler of the new empire of Brazil held the authority to distribute land. 
The 1889 proclamation of the Republic did not change the ownership of that land. Until now, despite the promises of several presidents, there has been no reform to change the situation. This means that the majority of land ownership in Brazil is the product of a feudal division from colonial times, not on the basis of the people's needs, but on the basis of friendship with the crown. The result of this history is that around 2% of the 5.5 million rural properties, more than 400 million hectares, called the Latifundio, are concentrated in the hands of an estimated 23,000 landlords who own 48% of the land, to the detriment of more than 5 million families of small landed peasants, 91%, who have only 20% of the land, 80 million hectares. The landed peasants have properties of a maximum of 100 hectares, with the great majority having at most 40 hectares, 8% representing the median properties own a range of 100 hectares to 900 hectares, and have 32% or 120 million hectares. 5 million peasant families have no land. This concentration of land is considered one of the most unequal in the world and has only accelerated since Lula's regime with the passage of the Terra Legal, which transferred more than 150 million hectares of public lands to the landlords. Landlessness the concept of landlessness is often used in Brazil to describe the situation where a lot of peasants live and cultivate land, called poceros, sometimes for decades or centuries, that belong legally to the latifundio or are public lands. More concerned with the concept of legality than material reality, opportunists describe them as landless because they do not hold legal property rights. The revolutionaries simply call this population poor peasants, a class description that is based on the small parcels of lands they cultivate or work on the lands of the landlords through various semi-feudal forms of leasing. Are there then landless peasants in Brazil? Yes, there are peasants who don't have any land to cultivate, which is why the LCP organizes land seizures throughout the country. However, once a peasant cultivates even one hectare of land, the term landless does not reflect reality. Violence against the poor peasants Since the first Quilombo rebellions, the state and the Latifundio have collaborated to massacre peasants, and those massacres have never stopped. Since the Battle of Santa Elena in 1995, there have been three other large-scale massacres, in addition to countless targeted assassinations. Eldorado dos Carajas in the state of Para in 1996, Colniza in the state of Mato Grosso in 2016, and Pau d'Arco also in the state of Para in 2017. The massacres continue because the fundamental contradiction of land to the tiller has not yet been resolved. The misery of the lives of the poor peasants pushes them to seize and occupy land from which they are evicted by violence by the Latifundio gunmen. Also, the Brazilian state not only turns a blind eye to the killings, e.g. between 1985 and 1996, 976 peasants were murdered and only seven people were ever convicted for any of these killings, according to Amnesty International, but in many cases sends the military police to assist the Latifundio gunmen. This was the case in the four massacres listed above. During the presidencies of Lula and his successor Husef, 2003-2016, the violence against poor peasants changed from blind killings to more selected assassinations of poor peasant leaders, indigenous peoples, and Quilombo organizations. Today, there are increasing incidences of both assassinations and large-scale massacres. The National Question to understand the situation regarding the national question in Brazil, it is necessary to keep in mind that Brazil is a colonial state built through a process of, quote, conquest, unquote, i.e. a genocide. This makes Brazil a multinational state, with many unrecognized and oppressed nations who were made oppressed minorities by the Brazilian state. With an estimated population of 900,000, they are mostly concentrated in the Amazonian forest and share the same history, language, territory, economic life, and culture. 
The Quilombos are also facing a brutal process of forced assimilation. They have maintained throughout their tradition of political, military, and cultural resistance their proper culture, separate economic life, and well-defined lands that they have occupied for centuries. They also constitute traditional communities. Those two populations, together with the poor peasants, have the Latifundio as their main enemy, and while the opportunist politics deepen the contradictions between them, by giving special rights to one group that forces them into contradictions with the rights of others, the revolutionaries call for the unity of the indigenous, quilombos and poor peasants to constitute a united front. While the opportunist Lula promised the demarcation of lands to the indigenous peoples, 14 years of the PT rule actually saw a slowing down of the creation of indigenous reserves, an increase of the exploitation of indigenous lands by Latifundio and agribusiness, and a legalization of indigenous land grabbing. This land grabbing is called grilligum in Portuguese because the landlords use the registry office where properties are registered to fabricate fake ownership documents. In order to make them look old, they put the papers with crickets, griot in Portuguese, which secretes fluids that give the documents an aged appearance. Much of that land is public land, which the terra legal law allowed Lafundus to cultivate. This consequently also increased the number of murders of indigenous people, raising it to the level of killings during the military regime. On the other hand, the revolutionaries' program to lay the foundation to construct the future new democratic state recognizes the right to self-determination, i.e. the right to separate and form their own state, of the indigenous and the special conditions of the traditional communities for the remnants of the Quilombos, and will work for them to remain united in a single people's state of a new democracy with their rights acknowledged. The issue of NGOs. There are over 1,000 NGOs in Brazil, more than 90% of them present since the military regime started to weaken at the end of the 1970s. Due to the misery of the masses produced by this semi-colonization of Brazil, these NGOs have grown quickly, forming a parallel structure to the state and relieving it of the responsibility of some of its functions. There are NGOs that originate and are financed by foreign countries, i.e. imperialist NGOs, and domestic NGOs. This excludes the NGOs that try to portray themselves as Brazilian, but exist only through funds coming from imperialist countries, and therefore embrace the same interests as the overtly foreign ones. The role of the first is to influence people on political, so-called, quote, democratic, unquote, concerns in order to have an impact on the reforms of the country, as well as to spread foreign imperialist culture. While NGOs sending teachers to Brazil to teach English could be seen as something good, the main intention behind such programs is to train people to communicate, and therefore to trade, in the language spoken by imperialist forces. In this context, it is not surprising then that 85% of the U.S. budget for foreign aid goes to NGOs. They also play the role of gathering information regarding the political and socioeconomic situation of the country. Most imperialist countries have strict laws regarding reporting obligations. While the, quote, international, unquote, NGOs directly serve the interests of imperialist forces, the, quote, domestic, unquote, NGOs serve the interests of different factions of the dominant classes. Their actions are similar to the first. Both types of NGOs target oppressed groups such as the indigenous, women, favelas, and poor peasants under different pretexts such as, quote, the defense of Amazonian forest, unquote, quote, gender equality, unquote, or, quote, right to health, unquote. The tactics they use to pacify the people's anger against semi-colonialism are to promise financial support or by corrupting some of the community leaders. In reality, their intervention changes nothing about the root causes of the problems of the oppressed and act to prevent people from a necessary rebellion against the Latifundio, which would change the situation for not just a few, but for all the oppressed masses. 2. How does the LCP struggle? 
the Poor Peasants League established a program called Noso Camino, Our Path, which contains the concrete steps needed to struggle against the oppression the masses face. Its main difference from the opportunist program is that it does not involve political maneuvers or legalistic tactics to reach its goal. The LCP struggle against the concentration of land by the Latifundio is raising the political consciousness of the peasants and their militancy to forcibly occupy their lands. Against landlessness, the LCP launches land seizures. To prevent violence against the murder of peasants, the LCP organizes self-defense. Regarding the indigenous and Quilombos, the LCP is building a united front to defend the rights of the people. And to the NGOs, the LCP answers that the people should take their destiny in their own hands. From seizing land to collectivization. Since the seeds of the occupation of Santa Elena was planted, the revolutionaries have distinguished themselves from the opportunists by showing that they won't wait for the corrupted state or imperialists to solve the problem of land. Seizure and occupation of lands begun in many parts of the country continues today. But seizing and distributing land is only the first step of a longer process, because to destroy the latifundio means struggling against the dominant classes and to their lords, the imperialists, and ultimately private property. In their program, the LCP defined two stages in the cooperation and production, as well as a third future stage. The Stage of Mutual Aid Once an area is seized and peasant occupation begins, the land is divided into equal parcels according to the size of the families. Peasants receive property titles that are recognized by the People's Assembly of the Peasants who occupy it in their leadership organ, the Committee for the Defense of Agrarian Revolution, CDR, to lay the basis for the construction of the new power. Each of the peasant families works on their own parcel, but a policy of mutual aid is promoted. While the landlords competitively fight amongst each other to advantage the profitability of their own crops, the CDR teaches the peasants that together they can all produce more and benefit from their increased production. The Stage of Cooperatives Once the notion and practice of mutual aid is deeply rooted in a revolutionary area, it is possible to advance to the stage where peasants agree to pool the land and work on it together. This involves both collective work in the fields, as well as a collective distribution and commercialization of the harvest. It can also mean collective ownership of agricultural machinery such as tractors. Some revolutionary areas are already in this stage. The Stage of Collectivization This stage is seen as a future perspective, which first requires not only a new democratic revolution, but also a higher level of consciousness among the peasants. What is the new culture? To raise the level of political consciousness and begin to fight the hegemony of bourgeois and landlord culture by putting socialist principles in practice, the LCP promotes a new culture in its revolutionary areas. Apart from exercising a military and political occupation, imperialism spreads its decadent culture to pacify the people, look to their oppressors as their saviors, and hate their own class. Imperialists hide their propaganda in claiming their promotion of quote, freedom and democracy, unquote, and quote, morality, unquote, but in reality, their culture promotes exactly the opposite. Individualism, racism, sexism, alcoholism, drug addiction, etc. To counter this hegemony and introduce socialist relationships and practices, the LCP defines 16 rules of function and discipline in the revolutionary areas. In addition to creating new democratic structures for governance, Articles 6, 7, and 8 speak directly to promoting a new way of living in relation with others in society, i.e. forbidding drug use, including alcohol, discrimination on the basis of race, religion, or gender, and prostitution and gambling. Moreover, the LCP promotes sports, culture, art, and literature, and creates structures to encourage them. One of the most fundamental campaigns in the revolutionary areas is the struggle against illiteracy, carried out in the people's school. 
Those schools also give courses to raise political consciousness, including analyzing the current situation in Brazil, the world, and its contradictions. Education and Health The question of the education and health of the families in the revolutionary areas, often far from the cities and basic infrastructure, is crucial. The LCP sees the question of education and health as one of the four fundamental pillars necessary to transform the Brazilian countryside. In its areas, this is carried out through people's schools and health clinics. While in most areas, children still going to state schools, people's schools are built to promote a different form of education for people 16 years and older, based on principles of study, work and struggle, i.e. scientific investigation, struggle for production, and class struggle. The people's schools serve to both reduce illiteracy as well as raise the level of consciousness of the peasant masses. Regarding health, the LCP aims to promote a people's system for prevention and curing of diseases through traditional knowledge of therapies and using medicinal herbs, hygiene measures, and sewer systems as the basis for a future people's health clinics. How are the revolutionary areas protected? Although the occupied land is proclaimed legal and just by the People's Assembly and the CDR, the illegal character of the land occupation in the eyes of the bourgeois law brings repression. The latifundio, who want the peasants to leave their lands, repress them through paid gunmen. The direct repression of imperialism through the dominant classes leading the state, which sees the growing strength of the peasant movement as a threat to their semi-colonial slash semi-feudal exploitation of the Brazilian lands, repressed through military, paramilitary, and police violence, as well as with their control of the judicial system. For centuries, the latifundio and the state have been arm-in-arm in perpetuating massacres against the masses and targeted killings of peasant leaders. While the opportunists believe that it is enough to organize marches and call the UN to act against the killings, missing the point that those responsible for the killings are the same as those who are behind the UN, the revolutionary areas have defined a policy of self-defense. This policy aims to train all members of each area to defend themselves against frontal attacks, gunmen, military police, etc. in eviction actions, as well as attempts of infiltration. Obtaining information on the enemy's movements and spreading counter-information is also seen as a part of self-defense. 3. The Achievements of a Revolutionary Area in the North of Manaus The Line of Naso Camino was established following the Battle of Santa Elena and was adopted by the Revolutionary Peasant Movement and Aldo Brazil during the LCP's first Congress in 2000. We can measure the correctness of its line by observing what concrete gains it has made, taking the achievements of the Revolutionary Area of the Bridge of the Workers-Peasant Alliance in the North of Manaus as an example. The Worker-Peasant Alliance Bridge the Bridge of the Worker-Peasants Alliance is an area between the small cities of Varzalandia and São João de Ponte, north of Manaus, which was occupied land in 1998. It is inhabited and cultivated by 35 families under constant threat of eviction. In 2006, LCP comrades organized to solve an issue that had already deadly consequences for the children in the area. The area is located near a river that school children have to cross every day to go to school. However, the river never had a real bridge, just three improvised unstable logs laid over a river that sometimes had a dangerous current when flooded. Following the death of two children who fell and were caught in the current, the mayor of São João de Ponte from the Workers' Party PT, the municipality in the nearest village where the school is located, made numerous speeches during his election campaign promising to build a bridge, just as previous mayors did for decades. The peasants voted with enthusiasm for him, but once he was elected, his promises turned out to be empty. Suddenly the project was impossible because it was too expensive, with an estimate cost of 100,000 reals, and the delegation of peasants that went to the city hall to protest its decision was not even granted a meeting. 
The peasants in the area understood through this process that state intervention was not going to solve their problem and that they had to solve it through their own efforts. However, while the peasants were hardworking men and women, they did not have the technical skills to build a bridge. How to design it, what material should be used, and what pressure it needed to resist were questions to which they had no sure answer. At this time, the slogan of, quote, unity of the workers and peasants, unquote, became more than just words, but a real necessity. They would not be able to build this bridge without the collaboration of the workers. The peasants from the LCP contacted their comrades from the Workers' League, Liga Operea LO, who quickly understood and conceptualized the work to be done. Many were peasants themselves who became landless following Latifundio evictions, forced to migrate to the cities in search of work. They understood firsthand all the potential different difficulties of the construction, such as soil erosion and the protection against flooding. LO engineers arrived at the site to carefully inspect and measure everything. Their conclusion? It was possible to build a bridge, and the estimated cost of the materials was around 15,000 rials. When the peasants wondered why the mayor estimated the cost at 100,000 rials, the engineers explained how the overestimation of a project was a common way for corrupt politicians to siphon off money for themselves. How unsurprising it was for them to learn, some years later, about the accusations of corruption against Lula and Husef. Once the blueprints were made, the question of the material returned. The peasants were unanimous. The mayor promised so they would make him keep his promise. Continuous demonstrations in front of the city hall forced the unwilling mayor to release the necessary materials. From the beginning until the end of the construction, not a single person was paid for their work to build it. The peasants from the area, that was at that time called Paraterra 1, and other surrounding areas as well as workers of Mareda Union, a union of civil construction workers from the capital of the state of Manas Dures, and base of the Workers' League, and from other cities went daily to take part in the construction as a collective and voluntary action. This required a lot of determination and a high level of political consciousness, as the peasants were still working in the fields and the workers on construction sites, two tiring jobs. From the beginning, women from the area joined the construction, saying that their role wasn't solely to cook and clean, but also to take part in the construction. A collective decision was made so that every week, one day was a woman's only day on the construction site, a youth only day was also instituted. As the construction advanced, some of the more skeptical peasants began to realize that the bridge was going to be built without the work of anyone but the peasants and workers themselves. When the mayor saw the progression of the project, he rushed to the site to boast that he was the one to think because he allowed for the materials. They had answered that it was their own taxes that paid for those materials, and that it was workers and peasants leading the construction. They asked, quote, And you, what have you done, unquote? Embarrassed, the mayor had no answer. The construction of the bridge ended a few months later. A solid bridge, capable of carrying a load of 30 tons, was built with an even more solid alliance of workers and peasants of the north of Manas. During its inauguration on December 9, 2006, comrades estimated that the sum of the days worked of the many participants would require 1,800 days of voluntary work. The People's Assembly of the area decided to call it the Worker-Peasant Alliance Bridge, reflecting the real protagonists of its construction making a plaque to commemorate the hard work of over 80 women and 300 men who took part in its construction. An LCP leader proclaimed, quote, never again will we vote, unquote. One week after the inauguration, the mayor arrived at the bridge to make his own inauguration. No one attended. He also placed commemorative plaques, but what was written on them remains a mystery as the following day they disappeared into the river. Through this process, the peasants were able to see concretely how they would not be able to change the countryside of Brazil without the workers, just as the workers understood that the key for substantive change in their conditions was the peasant struggle for land and the destruction of the Latifundio. 
an oasis in a desert. The region of North Manas is considered a tropical savanna with dry summer climate, meaning wet seasons for five through seven months and dry seasons for three to five months. It's a climate that is warm at all times of the year, with fertile soil that produces ample crops as long as they receive water. But with climate change, the region has longer and longer dry seasons. A lot of peasants had to abandon their lands as the prolonged droughts have had destructive consequences on their ability to produce self-sustaining crops. Without a costly irrigation system like the ones Lottie Fundio and agribusiness companies have, year-long production is prone to devastating crop failures. But the peasants of the Bridge of the Workers' Peasant Alliance area learned through the construction of the bridge that they could do more than just passively wait for the worst to happen. Once again, it was the Worker-Peasant Alliance that allowed them to do what opportunists would see as, quote, too ambitious, unquote, and, quote, too costly, unquote. The cost of the irrigation system was far less costly when divided by the 35 families of the area, but another issue appeared. How would they install a centralized irrigation system when each of the families had their different parcels of land far away from each other? This issue helped the peasants understand the necessity of putting together some of their parcels and cultivating them collectively. An area of 30 hectares was set aside for the collective field, and the work to install their irrigation system, designed by their comrades from the Workers' League, was completed in 2011. A cooperative was established to take care of the logistics, such as buying a tractor. Currently, 16 of the 30 hectares are cultivated, with ongoing work to make the remaining 14 hectares arable. The production in the shares each family receives is decided collectively every year, with each family tasked to work with others on certain parcel sections of land. Apart from the collective land, the peasants still have their own parcels that they use for their own personal needs. As a future goal, the peasants plan to develop a grain bank in order to be totally independent in grain. Since the unprecedented droughts in 2014, the collective land has become an oasis in a desert, a sea of green bursting with fruit trees, cassava, corn, beans, and peppers in an otherwise barren landscape. There is not a single month that it does not produce food. Politicization is a key to develop broader unity among the oppressed. This area is an example of one of the most developed LCP revolutionary areas. Its achievements were not made with the money of a US NGO or the actions of an opportunist mayor, but because the peasants internalized the necessity of the worker-peasant alliance. The state deployed many efforts to crush the area, but the consequences of its strength can also be observed through its impact on the local economy. It is considered the largest producer of horticultural products in the region. Therefore, even the non-revolutionary elements of the region support it because it would impact their own interests and would oppose a brutal eviction. The state is trying different tactics to remove the peasants from their lands. A recent one has been the creation of the Territorio Quilombolo de Brojo dos Criolos, a territory that the state legally allowed Quilombo communities to be occupied, including the land of the Bridge and the Workers' Peasant Alliance Revolutionary Area. This gives the nearest Quilombo community the legal right to evict everyone else in the area, although the lot of fundus still hold the legal property titles. Pitting one oppressed community against another is an old trick of putting masses against masses that works well because of the racism and xenophobia that the dominant classes spread to prevent their unity. Here, it didn't work because of the level of consciousness of the community, the consequence of the LCP's collective work and politicization resulting in a decades-long struggle against discrimination. So the Quilombos and the peasants of the region have a close relationship with some intermarriage. The regular attempts to defeat the comrades have been in vain. The revolutionary area has existed for 22 years and continues to develop its collective project. 4. Today's Situation There are dozens of areas that have been seized by the LCP in different Brazilian states, each with different stages of development, mutual aid, or cooperative. 
The communities living in the areas applied the line of Naso Camino, which creates a high-level political unity among them, despite some areas being distant from others, some separated by several thousands of kilometers. The movement is now facing a situation where the opportunists, incapable of solving the problems of the crisis of the decomposition of bureaucrat capitalism in the country, aggravated by the current international economic crisis, have been replaced by the government of the fascist Bolsonaro, which has encouraged the massacres of poor peasants and oppressed minorities, mainly the indigenous and quilombos, with the creation of a special military force tasked with their repression. The use of armed vehicles and even helicopters in evictions has become common. Against the increase in the brutality of the evictions, the LCP increases the level of resistance and seeks greater unity within all the strata of the oppressed masses, such as the ones affected by mining, construction of dams, cultivation of homogeneous forests, eucalyptus, including the urban worker masses. The situation in the country necessitates an increase in the struggle's intensity. The subjective conditions have shown through its 25-year-long history of struggle that it is capable of resisting and of raising the consciousness of the masses. Those two factors propel the peasant movement in Brazil towards a qualitative leap in its struggle for the agrarian revolution. The Brazilian Proletariat, June 15, 2020 Today, it's estimated that around 90% of the Brazilian population lives in what the state considers cities, with 17 cities of more than a million people each. The rural exodus that started in the 60s only accelerated after the end of the military regime in 1985. This article describes the formation of the Brazilian proletariat and its evolution to current times. 1. Slaves, Migrants, and Proletarians Slavery in Brazil was established at the onset of the Portuguese colonization in 1500 and lasted until 1888, a year before the formation of the first Brazilian Republic. At that time, there was an estimated 1.5 million slaves who became the main source of the formation of the proletarian class, as they were already the ones working in factories and construction on such major projects as the construction of the first railways, urban mass transportation, and electricity system starting from the 1850s. Therefore, the abolition of slavery, called the Golden Law, did not impact the economy of Brazil and provided the first workers that the growing number of factories needed. The number of the factories grew quickly, going from 600 in 1889 to 7,000 in 1914 and over 13,000 in 1920. Another source of the formation of the proletariat were the migrants, mostly Italian and Spanish, who started to arrive in the country since the mid of 19th century and came to Brazil in the beginning of the 20th century. The first strikes and embryos of unions can be traced as far back as the middle of the 19th century, but the workers' movement really developed after 1917 when a general strike against food and fuel cost increases paralyzed the country's industry. Later, two events strongly influenced the workers' movement, the news of the Russian Revolution and the formation of the Communist Party of Brazil, PCB, in March 1920. The anarcho-unionist past of the majority of its founders led to the PCB analysis of industrialism versus agrarianism as the principal contradiction of the country. This resulted in the false understanding that British imperialism, which was based in the latifundio, was against the industrialization and that North American imperialism was more favorable. In their political plan, the PCB adopted the opportunist electioneering line of the BOC, worker-peasant bloc. After the common terms criticism, the party abandoned this line and formulated the anti-imperialist and anti-fascist united front, promoting the class trade union activity with which it would gain the support of the majority of the main trade unions at the time, the dockers, railroaders, miners, and weavers. The Great Depression impacted the fragile economy and heightened the political crisis of the Republic of Rural Oligarchies. 
This resulted in conditions that led to an armed movement led by Vargas, former Minister of Economy of the government and defeated candidate in the elections, who seized power and installed a corporativist fascist regime for 15 years. The PCB mobilized the trade unions against this regime in an anti-fascist united front as part of the Tenetismo, rebel soldiers, the petite medium bourgeoisie. However, the peasants were not mobilized, which led to the defeat of the People's Uprising in 1935. The Vargas regime passed a series of reforms, such as the eight-hour workday and legal recognition of the trade unions, and created a Minister of Labor, with the goal of corporatizing the masses and preparing the field for the development of bureaucratic capitalism in Brazil. Some of the most combative unions were founded during these years, including the Trade Union of Civil Construction Workers of Belo Horizonte, STICBH, in 1933. The Vargas regime succeeded in dividing the workers' movement between the quote, moderate unquote, i.e. yellow unions, which collaborated with the Ministry of Labor, and the communists, which saw many of its leaders arrested. Following the end of the Second World War, Vargas was deposed by a military coup, and General Eurico Dutra, a trusted man of the USA, was elected president. Although the Minister of Labor continued to play the same role, the unions became more independent, allowing the PCB to play a larger role in their radicalization, leading to an intensification of the worker and peasant struggle. The attempts to reform the regime with a new constitution in 1946 changed nothing in the corporative structure of the state. The failure of the regime's economic policy sharpened contradictions among the fractions of the big bourgeoisie and landlords and between them and the masses. The result was the reinstatement of Vargas in the 1951 elections as a quote, democratically unquote, elected president with a populist and nationalist discourse. Rather than trying to overtly crush the workers' movement with repression, the Vargas regime adopted a tactic of trying to co-opt and pacify its leaders with a series of quote, pro-people unquote, reforms and programs for the nationalization and state monopoly of oil and electricity. The PCB defended the regime's tactics and mobilized the trade unions in the popular pro-Vargas campaign. But Vargas's main instrument to co-opt the masses was betting on his minister of labor, Zhao Goulart, a representative of the national bourgeoisie of his party. One of the reforms was to double the minimum wage, from 1,200 to 2,400 cruzeros in 1954. While the reform was touted as a revolutionary measure, it was actually an adjustment for the steep inflation that the Cruzeiro had experienced since the 1950s. In 1958, the revolutionary struggle in Brazil was impacted by the PCB's strategy shift towards the right, toward Khrushchev's line of, quote, peaceful transition, unquote, and the defense of the theory of productive forces. This led to a split between the revisionists and the revolutionaries in 1962. While the countryside stayed mostly in the hands of the revolutionaries who radicalized the peasant movement by reintroducing the idea of the necessity of armed struggle, the city stayed in the revisionist PCB's hands. Their change in strategy led to the pacification of the workers' movement as the PCB became primarily focused on a path to legalize their party. The military coup of 1964 took place mostly because imperialists and dominant classes feared the increasing resistance and opposition in the countryside. It was a direct blow at the peasant leagues who were preparing the peasant struggle for land through armed struggle. The military regime brutally repressed the revolutionary and democratic organizations by arresting, torturing, murdering, and disappearing hundreds of fighters. The state banned demonstrations and the rights of organizations to strike. Within the workers' struggle, the revolutionary leadership managed to organize only two strikes that were nevertheless important strikes against the fascist military regime in 1968 the Cobrasma Ironworks Strike in Osasco SP, and the Manisman Ironworks Strike in Contagem MG, which forced the government to raise the wages of all workers by 10%. Despite 
2. New Unionism and New Opportunists Due to the populist regimes, and mainly because of the actions of Goulart, Vargas's Minister of Labor, unionism in Brazil was always dependent on the government's political agenda. With the military coup of 1964 that deposed Goulart, the military regime forbade the right to strike, but as it began weakening at the end of the 70s, this measure became harder and harder to enforce. A decree was promulgated in August 1978 that allowed finally the right to strike under the conditions that those strikes would not include any, quote, essential sectors, unquote, and were non-violent, non-political, and non-ideological. This decree provided the possibility for the re-seizure of the leadership of the trade unions through elections and to strengthen the struggle for the right of union organization and the end of the control by the Minister of Labor. Between 1978 and 1982, strikes erupted all over Brazil with workers demanding better wages, a reduction in unemployment, and for re-democratization, frustrating the struggle for the revolutionary overthrow of the fascist regime. The fall of the military regime was because its government was unable to solve its economic problems, skyrocketing inflation, recession, and unemployment, which politically divided the dominant classes and sharpened the internal struggle within the regime, as well as the growing people's protest. New political actors appeared at this time, each trying to take advantage of the strikes to form the mass base for their future political parties. Taking the leadership of the strikes by winning the workers with reformist promises, the different political actors limited the strikes to the boundaries of the August 1978 decree. They were conscious that the regime knew about their role and could repress them if they went too far. In general, their role was to pacify the masses precisely at the moment when the general conditions were ripe to advance the struggle. But this was not the case in all the strikes. In May 1979, workers went on strike at the Mannesmann Ironworks, a German ironwork with 14,000 workers in the industrial center of Contagem Metropolitan Region of Belo Horizonte, MG. The strike was organized by a group of revolutionary workers from various professions in a new formation named Moretta Sledgehammer. Although the strike was repressed, it raised the banner of the revolutionary overthrow of the military regime. In a few days' time, the same group mobilized civil construction workers in a strike of more than 40,000 workers in Belo Horizonte, a strike that became known as the Revolt of the Masons, which began with bread-and-butter demands. These strikes, together with the strike of public education teachers in the state, soon spread to all other professions. During the construction worker strike, worker Orcelio Martins Goncalves was shot by the police. Enraged, the masses swept the repressive troops of the state away from the city center. Eventually, the rebellion controlled the entire center of the state capital. Desperate, the ruling classes and authorities of the military regime sponsored a trip of domesticated trade unionists to divide the masses and end the strike. Luis Inacio, Lula, was the main leader saying that there were groups of professional agitators trying to take advantage of the workers. His maneuvers led to the division and the economic defeat of the strike. The management metallurgy workers' strike lasted eight days, and the civil construction workers' strike lasted five days. These strikes served as a formative lesson for the workers of Belo Horizonte. There were combative class struggles that resounded with the popular masses and served to politicize hundreds of new worker militants into the revolutionary ranks of, of Moretta. In particular, the civil construction workers managed to retake the union by expelling the patron and military regime agents. From 1981 to 1983, a series of national meetings were conducted in order to form a national confederation to unite the different unions under the direction of the new leadership that emerged all over the country following so many strikes. However, the Congress of more than 10,000 delegates from the whole country was divided by the opportunism of the unionists trained in Yankee institutions, IIA, DESIL, from AFL-CIO, with Lula at their head, together with Trotskyist organizations in sectors of the Catholic Church. 
They quit the Congress and created the United Central Workers, CUT, in August 1983. The majority of the trade unions that struggled for unity on a class line reconstructed the General Confederation of the Workers, CGT. Moretta took part in the General Confederation of Workers, CGT, in order to advance a revolutionary line, winning many unions such as the Union of the Drivers of Passenger Transportation in 1990. But the situation in the country demanded continued advancement and the contradictions within the CGT led to many splits. As the struggle in the countryside became increasingly violent, particularly with the struggle in Hondania and the Battle of Santa Elena, discussions on forming a class-based organization gave birth to the Worker and Peasant League, LOC, on September 2, 1995. The LOC was a decisive force to mobilize the worker unions in the cities to support the peasants in their struggle for land. With the further development of the peasant movement, the LOC separated into two allied organizations, the LO and the LCP. 3. Breaking with old ideas The LO's formation wasn't simply a question of breaking from an organization to build an identical one with a quote uncorrupt unquote leadership. There was a necessity to not only get rid of the opportunist, but also get rid of old ideas and concepts of struggle that were deeply rooted in the workers' movement. Besides strikes for better work conditions, such as security on worksite, they identified the need to build an alliance with the peasants, seen as the main strength of the revolution in their semi-feudal, semi-colonial country. While the CUT slash CGT, and others that emerged from new splits like Forca Syndical, leadership had no interest in that struggle. Seen as too distant from the cities and without relevance, the Yellow sent their members to strengthen and support the resistance whenever possible. Additionally, the Yellow saw the importance of not only struggling in the workplace, but also of where the workers lived. Because the League had a strong base in civil construction workers, they were able to address a direct need of the people, housing. In 1995, a Belo Horizonte neighborhood was built from the fierce struggle for land seizure and named Villa Corombiara to honor the struggle of Santa Elena. In 1999, another neighborhood, called Villa Bandera Vermela, was built in Batim, a city in the Belo Horizonte suburbs. Both of the initiatives were repressed by the local authorities. Just as the struggle of the Villa Corumbiara in Belo Horizonte was repressed by the PT mayor, Patris Ananias, in Batim, the repression was ordered by Mayor Jesus Lima, also a member of the PT, and led to the months-long resistance against the military police's attempt at eviction, where two workers, Elder and Aeronitis were murdered. While the LO was building houses to serve the people, the PT became hegemonic in the CUT and turned it into an instrument to solely serve its electoral ambitions. The 1990s marked the triumph of neoliberalism in Brazil, brought as a quote, solution unquote, to the various crises the country was going through. But during his 2002 election campaign, Lula denounced the bankers and the IMF for being the cause of the inflation and promised to refuse to pay the foreign debt unless a careful audit was conducted to adjust the amount. However, this promise worried imperialist investors, and Lula was aware that he could not win the elections without their support, so he published an open letter stating that he wouldn't cancel any of the unequal treaties once elected. Unsurprisingly, Lula was elected. Lula kept his promises. None of the unequal treaties were canceled, not even the IMF agreements that obliged to pay the totality of its foreign debt, including the exorbitant interest it accrued. To make that possible, he said that austerity measures were necessary. A few months after beginning his term, Lula brought forward labor reforms regarding social security and retirement of the public servants with the regularization of temporary work and pejo tizacao, derived from PJ, meaning legal person, a form of contract in which the employer contracts a worker as a service provider without legal rights of workers, 
making them inaccessible to the poorest. The worker movement had all the reasons to protest the reforms, as their members were the most impacted. But the CUT called to calm them, assuring their members that the reforms were just temporary measures to reimburse the national debt in order to become independent from the International Monetary Fund, IMF, more quickly. This type of tactic kept Lula in power from 2003 to the end of his second term in 2010. The public-private partnerships, the introduction of new agribusinesses and large multinational companies, and the increased plunder of natural resources were all measures to supposedly help the Brazilian economy grow. While before his election, Lula gave rousing speeches about how that kind of growth only profited imperialism, after he took office, they suddenly showed that this was now the way to make Brazil independent. Elo continued its struggle in those years. In 2003, it called for demonstrations to protest the Lula IMF government reforms and was joined by grassroots workers from other unions who didn't buy the illusion of the necessity for temporary measures. During Lula's tenure, 2003 through 2010, and his successor Dilma Rousseff, 2010 through 2016, the LO called for many demonstrations to protest the different reforms of the opportunist government, which brought thousands to the streets in the big cities. For example, the big demonstrations of 2006, 2007, and 2008 in the capital. The ELO organized for militant strikes, such as calling for general strikes, which had been abandoned at the end of the strikes in the 70s. The Education Workers' Class Movement, MOACLATE, a union allied with LO, also initiated occupations of schools, turning the schools into people's assemblies, together with the parents of the students and other sectors of the community, to discuss social problems and combat opportunists who use the strikes to promote candidates for the following elections. Chasing economic growth earned the PT support from both petite bourgeoisie and the dominant classes, but it had made it less and less popular in the eyes of the workers and peasants through years. By applying the programs of compensatory policies prescribed by the World Bank, assistance programs and the corporatization of the miserable masses, such as Bolsa Familia, and access to easy credit, they got the support of some of these masses. Through their tricks, they were able to temporarily obscure, for some, the grave economic crisis of bureaucratic capitalism. However, in June 2013, violent protests exploded in the capitals and the biggest cities of the country against the headquarters of executive power, legislation offices, judiciary power, bank agencies, arrests and processes. The demonstrations continued until 2014. North American imperialism, with their generals in command of the reactionary armed forces, saw these ongoing protests as a danger of potential revolution and set in motion a preventative counter-revolutionary offensive against the uprising of the masses. They launched Operation Lava Jato against corruption taking advantage of the scandals of the PT administration. When the crisis exploded into a recession and unemployment, the struggle between the ruling class's fractions were aggravated and the PT was discarded with the impeachment of Dilma. The political and moral crises of the entire old political system was heightened, and the politicians and institutions of the old state lost credibility and legitimacy, leading the masses to boycott the sham elections more than ever. The Brazilian people have seen that in the last 40 years, the rule of the governments of all official parties means that they are part of the exploited classes all the same. The corruption scandal and the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in 2015 signaled the end of the masses' trust in the PT, with a record unpopularity and non-trust in the government, estimated at 9%. In the following elections, many saw the fascist Bolsonaro as the, quote, lesser evil, unquote. 4. Bolsonaro harvested what Lula sowed. In December 2015, while the union leadership co-opted by the opportunist governments were unsuccessfully engaged to appeal to the workers to demonstrate against the impeachment, the LO held meetings between different combative unions. The first step in calling for a broader unity has been particularly important after Bolsonaro's election, 
in the struggle for a general strike of national resistance against his, quote, reforms, unquote, dictated by Yankee imperialism, and in defense of public and free education, combined with the struggle of the poor peasants against eviction and more seizures of land. Contrary to Lula slash Husef, Bolsonaro has not hidden his agenda, which is a step further than the PT's, less interventionism of the state and economy, fewer taxes for the rich, more privatization. This hasn't been a break from the PT government's politics. It would not have been possible without the Lula slash Husef reforms. In June 2019, a general strike paralyzed the country, with an estimate of 45 million strikers. The strike contested measures of the Bolsonaro government, mostly the pension reform that increased the age of retirement from 60 to 62, in the cities and from 55 to 60 in the countryside, and the cuts in education. The League participated and led these strikes in some cities, such as Belo Horizonte. Bolsonaro's plans for Brazil are militarization and the banning of people's struggles, both in the cities and in the countryside, and it's still too imperialist. After more than one year of government, Bolsonaro has shown himself to be a fascist braggart who dreams of resurrecting the military regime. However, the control of the government is really by the military generals who are leading the counter-revolutionary offensive and concentrating power in the executive. They are doing so through reforms of the current constitution because they fear that the direct installation of a military regime that Bolsonaro wants would be disastrous and lead to a countrywide front. A strong resistance against his regime will be possible only with the unity of the workers and peasants, the Workers' League's aligned since its founding. A Revolutionary Perspective on the Pandemic in Brazil, an interview with the editorial staff of Inova Democracia, June 29, 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to spread, and its consequences on the oppressed classes are the most dire. In Brazil, the government led by the fascist Bolsonaro has used the opportunity to increase repression as the masses have become increasingly emboldened to act. To learn more about this situation, we conducted the following interview with the editorial staff of Inova Democracia, newspaper of the Brazilian Revolutionary Movement. Before we begin, our comrades at Inova Democracia welcomed our interview with these kind words. First, in the name of the leadership and the editorial staff of Inova Democracia, we want to present our internationalist greetings to the comrades of Red Spark, affirming our willingness for the interchange of experiences and sharing journalistic activity, serving the cause of the proletariat and other people's masses of the whole world. Red Spark. Comrades, could you help us understand the context in Brazil leading up to the pandemic? The world is shaken by the fierce general crisis of imperialism, strengthened by the COVID-19 pandemic and, in the midst of the chaos of social isolation, the first explosions of people's revolts have emerged, which, like a powder keg, have crossed throughout the whole world. The cowardly murder of George Floyd, a black worker in Minneapolis, USA, by the police was the trigger for the flammable environment in the whole world generated by this crisis. Within this, it is necessary to contextualize the political situation of our country four months ago, when the COVID-19 pandemic arrived. Our country is marked by the radicalization of the strife between the power groups that represent the factions of the local ruling classes, the big bourgeois and landholder servants of imperialism, principally North American, strife for the hegemony on the apparatus of the old state. At the same time, they unite to impose the most brutal measures against the people through the quote reforms unquote, in truth, they are adjustments that restrict rights and austerity policies, all dictated by the international agencies of imperialism. Brazil is passing through the decomposing general crisis of its outdated bureaucratic capitalism within the general crisis of imperialism, deepening the political crisis that has existed since 2014. 
The election of the fascist Bolsonaro for the country's president in 2018 has only sharpened and potentiated the general crisis of the country. It is no longer possible for the local ruling classes and Yankee imperialism to maintain their outdated system of exploitation and oppression as it had until 2014, with an apparently normal operation of the political system based on the electoral sham. All this has crumbled through economic crisis and unrestrained corruption. The official political world is demoralized and discredited by the people. The election of Bolsonaro, which was praised as democratic and clean by the press monopolies, had a minority of the votes from the electorate. The boycott to the electoral sham had more than a third of the electors who could vote. The popular revolts of 2013-14 had already expressed the rejection of broad sectors of the people's masses to this whole old democracy that is corrupt and legitimates a system of semi-colonial and semi-feudal exploitation and oppression that has existed for a century and a half in the country. The failure of the governments of social democratic opportunism, PT, supported by the senile revisionism, PCDOB, and other so-called quote-unquote left, from 2003 to 2016, has provided a stage for anti-communism to raise its head and take the offensive. The massiveness and violence of the uprising in 2013 surprised the reaction, and the Yankees, together with the high command of the armed forces, planned and unchained a preventative counter-revolutionary offensive to the uprising of the masses that is fermenting throughout the whole country. The state is linked to the Yankee plans of deepening the militarization of Latin America, especially South America, to save its system of exploitation and oppression that is pointing towards collapse. Such a plan has the aim of carrying out the three reactionary tasks of restructuring the old state to impose a regime with maximum centralization on the executive power, taking the economy out of crisis, urging on its bureaucratic capitalism and preventing the danger of revolution, smashing popular rebellion and the annihilation of the revolutionary movement. However, the division among the local ruling classes is expressed in the insuperable political crisis that, with the election of Bolsonaro, throws the military to its center, thus constructing a military government which in fact tends to fascism and increases the war against the people, foretelling a civil war. Red Spark. How did the situation evolve when the cases of COVID-19 began to skyrocket? In this context, the pandemic advances with more than a thousand dead per day in the official data, but everyone knows that both the numbers of infection and deaths are far higher. This is due to the abandonment of the people by the historically genocidal Brazilian state. Not even when faced with such an alarming and even frightening event for the majority of our people like this pandemic, did governors move to take emergency measures to provide the population with preventative measures, application of tests, and expand the health network. They do not make the necessary and urgent investment in health to supply the public hospitals to face the pandemic or various other infectious diseases that attack the poor people, such as tuberculosis. To give an idea of this framework, in one of the biggest favelas of Rio de Janeiro city called Hanchina, the current state of tuberculosis is five times higher than the national rate of disease. This is not to speak of other endemics that attack the impoverished people every year, such as dengue, zika, chikungunya, influenza, yellow fever, measles, and others. And the disregard is such that the state is destroying the public system that was built decades ago to benefit the private health sector that increasingly grows and gets richer. As the heritage of the populist governments in the 1950s and 1960s and a strong reformist mass movement, a public health system was founded for state workers and another for private workers. This was maintained and expanded by the fascist military regime of 1964. With the end of the military regime during the 80s, the single health system, SUS, for free and universal care, was instituted by the Constituent Assembly of 1988. It included the peasant who had no rights to public health services back then. However, due to the low-budget endowment for health, the public network lacks medical staff, equipment, medication, and other hospital supplies. This difficult situation was already aggravated year after year, 
benefiting the private network that grew at the same rate that the public network was growing precarious. Then the pandemic came. What was predicted has happened. The SUS collapsed. Before the great incidence of the virus in the country, enormous sections of the poor people had no access to an adequate health treatment. Today, the situation is far worse and almost all the public hospitals of the country have their wards and UTIs, intensive treatment units, at full capacity. They lack vacant wards and mechanical respirators, and the infection seems to be far from reaching its peak. In this extreme situation, the government refuses to demand the private network to make their wards and UTIs available for the general care of the impoverished population. Today, three months after the pandemic, more than a thousand people die every day, the majority of them dying while waiting for a vacancy, treated in the passageways and doors of public hospitals. In the city of Rio de Janeiro, as an example, the waiting queue for treatment reached 400 people, which, consequently, raises the number of deaths. In the north and northeast of the country, the situation is even worse. Despite being the last regions to be afflicted with the pandemic, the poorest layers of the population were quickly infected due to the lack of minimal structure of health services, and the precarious state of the existing public hospitals is frightening. In the majority of the states of these regions, the mechanical respirators that are indispensable for treating the grave acute cases exist only in small quantities in their capitals. Only one of the 20 cities of the country with the greatest morality per 100,000 inhabitants is not in these regions, which is Rio de Janeiro in the southeast. In the cities of the states of these regions, there are rates of more than 100 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. As if the situation was not enough, Bolsonaro, who, since the beginning, has declared that COVID-19 was no more than a little flu, has not only stood against social isolation, but himself refused any of the orientations of distancing and using masks. Social isolation was established by the governments of the states and cities by decree, following the guidelines of the WHO, World Health Organization, under the pressure of the Parliament and the Supreme Court, Bolsonaro attacks the isolation measures every day, contrary to the recommendations of the Ministry of Health of his own government, which already changed ministers twice. He attacks governors and mayors, disorienting the population. This is an increasingly open conflict with the big bourgeoisie and landholders, who up to now make intense propaganda about the isolation through the press monopolies, not only appealing to the population, but through real campaigns of media terrorism to frighten and intimidate. All this due to the fear that a greater mortality toll could generate commotion and explosions of revolt. Why does Bolsonaro, a declared fascist, go against social isolation, when his government could benefit from it to demobilize the masses? The reason for this is very simple. The struggle among the ruling classes was also carried to the handling of the pandemic by the state. When the governors of the states, the majority of whom opposed Bolsonaro, and the overwhelming majority of the 5,600 mayors established the isolation by decree, Bolsonaro saw this measure as a machination to ruin the economy, cause greater unemployment and misery, wear out his government, and overthrow it. Furthermore, in many regions of the country, very few tests for COVID-19 are being administered. The cause of death is not even being identified many times, and are registered in the death registry as unknown deaths, and not death by COVID-19. The under-notification of the infected and dead by COVID-19 mask, the real extent of the health crisis in Brazil and official data, at the moment, Brazil is already the second country in the world in number of deaths caused by the disease behind the United States. Together with the most brutal measures of a war economy against the rights and lives of the workers, similar to the ones adopted in many countries like reduction of working hours with reduction of wages and temporary suspensions of contracts, the government and the parliament approved an emergency aid of 600 reyes, 120 USD, and three monthly payments for the informal workers, micro-enterprisers, and unemployed, whose family income is no greater than three minimum wages, 627 USD. 
More than 100 million people applied in long queues to receive this money. However, only a few more than 40 million received the first payment. Another million, among whom there are people who have nothing to eat, had their applications denied. Even worse, now the government wants to reduce the value to 300 reyes. Revolts are increasing in the immense queues. This is a scenario that becomes even more frightening as whole families are on the streets of the big cities, mainly asking for help, charity, food, despite the already numerous homeless populations. Even though, aiming at the next elections, which nobody knows if they will take place, the president, governors, and other politicians pile strife on top of the heap of corpses, exchanging accusations. All of them call themselves Democrats and accuse the others of fascism. It would be comical if it was not that tragic for the people's situation. It is pathetic and a crime against humanity. The filthy verbal diarrhea that overflows every day from the press monopolies as our people get sick without adequate treatment and die unassisted. Facing this announced tragedy, Bolsonaro, an anti-communist and visceral Americanophile, given his project of fascist dictator and for the interests of the big bourgeoisie and landholders, insists on opposing any social distancing, showing an abject scorn towards the people who continue without the minimal health care. The majority of the temporary hospitals announced by the government have not been built yet. Others had their installation paralyzed because of judicial embargo due to accusations and even proof of corruption. Bolsonaro, in his demagogic ambition, incites groups of followers who demand closing the parliament and the Supreme Court with military intervention with Bolsonaro in power. In these demonstrations, he appears without mask, greets the people with bare hands, holds and kisses children, and coldly reaffirms that he mourns the dead, but, quote, we're all going to die someday anyway, unquote. Red Spark. We see worldwide that the pandemic is affecting people not only on the level of health, but also economically. What response did the oppressed people have in Brazil? The current and very serious crisis of imperialism deepened the crisis of bureaucratic capitalism in Brazil, which is still continuing its decomposing general crisis. Millions of people are being launched into complete misery. The official data indicates that, only during the months of February, March, and April this year, the number of unemployed in the country, which was already 12%, rose to 12.6%, meaning more than 12,800,000 people unemployed. The Brazilian GDP fell 1.5% in the first trimester relative to the same last year, but there is a consensus among the economists that a true bump will take place, now during the second trimester, indicating an unprecedented recession in Brazil with irreversible results for certain sectors of the country's economy. The old Brazilian state provides generous compensatory packages of billions of reais to some dozens of economic and financial corporations, but promises to the medium, small, and micro companies remain promises. Within a frightening situation of bankruptcies of those who employ the majority of the labor force, and for the unemployed masses, low-wage employees, and informal workers, they offer the aforementioned charity of only monthly 600 reais, $120 USD, for three months, now reduced to 300 reais. The poor people of the cities and the countryside are mobilizing and protesting. Moreover, from the revolts that have invariably taken place in the last 50 years throughout the country against all kinds of afflictions of this system, only after two months of isolation, within which recently are mostly protests of mainly health workers due to the precarious working conditions, lack of equipment and protection materials for their professional activities, and aiding frontline workers of COVID-19, increasingly massive demonstrations have been initiated against the government, against coupism and fascism potentiated by the events of rejecting crimes of racism in the U.S. For three consecutive weekends, demonstrations in the capitals of the states and in many other cities have been taking place. On May 31st, when the streets of Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, and Belo Horizonte, the biggest cities of the country located in the southeast region, were taken by organizations of young anti-fascist football fans, 
together with a combative youth who were protagonists in the uprisings in 2013-14, expelled the militants of the phony opportunist electioneering left from the demonstrations. The anti-fascists have struggled against the scoundrel groups of fascists who are followers of Bolsonaro, scum that is forming organizations like the Brown Vests of Hitler. Wearing green and yellow clothes, the color of the official Brazilian flag, in their militarized demonstrations, the Bolsarnist fashions always carry the flags of Brazil, of the U.S., and sometimes from Israel, and the flag of the fascists in Ukraine and other neo-Nazi symbols. These demonstrations asked for a military intervention with Bolsonaro in power, enclosing the National Parliament and the Supreme Court, Federal Superior Court. In the last confrontations between the anti-fascist use and the Bolsonarists, the police forces intervened in the name of assuring order and avoiding violence, but they attacked only the anti-fascist, who were not intimidated and retaliated with sticks, stones, and bottles, promising to return another day. This tendency is increasing the demonstrations as they were repeated on Sundays, June 7th and the 14th. At the same day of the May 31st protest, another protest took place in front of Rio de Janeiro's governor's palace against the death of a black adolescent, 14 years old, whose house was invaded by a police command. The police, with the pretext of being in an encounter with drug dealers, fired 70 rifle shots, cowardly murdering the young boy. The demonstrators were violently repressed by the same murderous police, but they resisted denouncing the criminal action of those who every day kill black and poor youth and children in the favelas of the big cities of the country. In the same month, May, peasants have faced the repression forces of Bolsonaro in the state of Hondonia, northwest of the country. The government have started an operation of the reactionary armed forces called Green Brazil with the pretext of combating burning in the Amazon forest. Under the command of the vice president, General Morau, this operation is carrying out the reactionary war against the people, particularly the poor peasants, small and medium proprietors, indigenous, and quilombola peoples. Such an operation is part of the plan of the ongoing preventative counter-revolutionary coup in the country that is led by the high command of the armed forces. Through their decrees of the GLO, Law and Order Guarantee, they started to install special troops of the reactionary armed forces in various points of legal Amazon that corresponds to the states of Mato Grosso, Hondonia, Acre, Amazonas, Roraima, Amapa, Para, Decantins, and part of Maranhão. However, the pandemic did not impede the peasants from continuing forward with their struggle and combative resistance. On May 19th in Jostanopoulos area, a district of Nova Mamor, state of Hondonia, the people repelled the repressive forces. Tired of so much abuse, humiliation, persecution, and repression, the inhabitants mobilized themselves and prevented a family from being arrested. The peasants blocked the road in different points using trees and destroying bridges. This has forced the policemen to take shelter in the woods, where they were forced to spend the night. Other similar cases have taken place in the Amazon region. Thus, the masses are understanding better, day by day, the contradictions between them and the ruling classes in Brazil, serving the interests of imperialism, principally Yankee. And more, they are noticing that the virus is not a common enemy, as said by the press monopoly. The virus lethally affects mainly the elderly, the ill, and the poor people in general, because they only have precarious health access or none. In Brazil, the life of the rich is worth much more than that of the poor. This is why we work to show the masses the struggle is not against the viruses preached by the reaction in their campaigns, but that they should organize themselves to protect themselves from it, because the struggle is against this old state and the system of exploitation and oppression that it guards. The revolutionary movement has not become indifferent nor passive in facing so much suffering, injustice, and increased abuse with the pandemic. Duty calls, with full lungs, the true Democrats and revolutionary to act. Despite the many difficulties, the number of activists from the masses is growing quickly and with enthusiasm. 
We are saying that this indicates that the struggle will develop a lot in the next months and years. There is a Herculean and protracted struggle coming. Red Spark. What was the response of the people and of the revolutionary movement? Within this world framework, if one depends on imperialism, both in one's own country and in all others, the masses are hopeless victims of the virus and capital super-exploitation, with layoffs at a rate rarely seen, never seen in absolute terms. Reduction of wages, temporary suspension of contract, and all kinds of cuts of rights. As for the monopolist corporations, they are having their losses reimbursed with generous help from the public treasury, just as it happens in many countries, including Brazil. Just like in almost the whole world, here in Brazil, the reactionary authorities define the crisis of coronavirus as a state of public calamity, necessitating a war economy, seizing the opportunity of the seriousness of the situation to impose social isolation for the majority of the people, with increasing restrictions to circulation in the cities, between them and between states, closing borders, making communication difficult even through the internet by restricting public use. It happened that Bolsonaro, together with Trump, initially, was contrary to the recommendations of social isolation adopted by health authorities. This was because the social isolation in the country was presented as a serious problem for his maintenance in the government, because the struggle for power among the fractions of the ruling classes moved towards removing him from the government, based on his inability to stabilize the situation of the country. Bolsonaro was a permanent source of conflict and political and judicial instability, frightening companies and repelling foreign investors. So he needed to mobilize his hordes of supporters with demonstrations every Sunday, and started violating the isolation measures defined by the state governors and mayors of the cities. Regardless, the different police forces patrol grows every day in the streets, and the army has been launched in the Amazon region, which represents 60% of the national territory, with the pretext of combating fire and illegal woodcutting. They are actually acting to carry out the law and order guarantee to prevent the seizure of lands, displace the peasant masses from the lands conquered in the struggle, and surrounding and attacking the revolutionary peasant movement. Which means, to try to prevent the people's rebellion on the countryside and in the cities, the government is launching the repressive forces of the old state, claiming that because of health measures, gathering and demonstrations are forbidden. Police military forces are authorized to act to enforce a curfew, like it was in a state of siege. The campaign for social isolation through the monopolized media means brought, in a few days, the weakened national economy to the bottom. This appears to be incoherent, but it is not because the greater fear of important sectors of the ruling classes is of a people's rebellion if the killings at the superpopulous urban zones, as well as the peasant masses, inflate an avalanche of protests. It is a terrible situation, and the masses are completely unassisted in minimal conditions for treatment in a collapsing health system. It is not even possible to apply social isolation in poor neighborhoods and favelas, where the small houses shelter numerous people of the workers' families. Misery is brought over the masses, they cannot even cry near the body of their beloved relatives in collective burrows. Struck by unemployment and the loss of customers of the services by the informal workers, as well as the goods that wandering merchants depend upon to earn the everyday bread, these masses chased by hunger and misery will not stay imprisoned in their shacks. The majority will and is going out seeking bread for their children, getting infected or not, they are moving, they will not die of hunger without doing anything, this is certain and we are seeing it in the daily life and our activity among the masses. All this, on the one hand, made the development of the objective revolutionary situation take a leap. On the other, we see that the revolutionary movement has not blinked facing the situation. On the contrary, we have witnessed their activity. In the midst of the curfew in many cities and all regions, communist red flags celebrating the 98 years of the founding of the Communist Party were registered. A party that is clandestine and called the popular masses to mobilize to take equipment for their protection from their pandemic infection 
medicine for the chronically ill, conditions for treatment, internment, expansion of wards and UTIs, respirators, seize the private health network, emergency allowance for all workers, annulment of the water and electricity bills from the government, but also organizing themselves to gather the self-supply of food and necessities, affirming that only the people save the people, and calling for the resistance against fascism. In our case, as a democratic people's press, we mobilize the committees to support the newspaper that are spread out around the country to strive for the mobilization to organize themselves in groups to defend themselves from the pandemic. At the same time, health committees of defense of the people emerged and are still multiplying in many places, wherever the deepest masses of the proletariat are, as well as in the countryside where the struggles for land and armed conflicts are increasing. We see that high levels of unemployment will not give alternatives for many masses in the cities, leading to going back to the countryside to struggle for a piece of land, where at least they could have a roof and ease the hunger of their families. The struggle in the countryside will grow measure by measure. This is what the committees of the newspaper and popular classist organizations from the rural zones inform us. We are saying that these health committees are people's organizations of the United Front that emerge from people's assemblies in these zones of excessive poverty. There are other initiatives of solidarity composed of goodwilled people, actions of religious people in solidarity, as well as opportunists, electioneering people, NGOs, etc. However, for the masses, it becomes clear from their interests in daily life, the masses are done with electioneering people. Just as was said before, parallel to all this capillary mobilization that are being organized on the streets, rows, favelas, housing lots, both the struggle for land and the demonstrations suddenly emerge and resound, attracting even more masses. We are very optimistic, despite all the horrors that surround us. The way the demonstrations against the murderous brutality of the U.S. police against the black people has spread throughout the world is something shocking. A revolution is like that, if it is true. Crisis, misery, diseases, unprecedented disgraces, events from which the increasing struggling masses emerge and seek a leadership with their willpower to make the whole old order of exploitation and oppression succumb. It is the duty of the revolutionaries to unite with those masses, mobilize them, politicize them, and organize them for their most urgent demands. Pointing toward the revolutionary struggle against the current regime of exploitation and oppression, imperialism, principally North American, and the opportunism that deceives the masses and for power. In the particular case of the shift of government in Brazil, the serious political, economic, and social crisis that has existed since 2014 deepens and leaps. There is a struggle each day more fiercely between the groups of power of the fractions of the local ruling classes, principally the palatial struggle between the far right of Bolsonaro and the military right, high command of the armed forces, for the hegemony and leadership of the counter-revolutionary state coup that was set in motion since 2015. This struggle has now modified, approaching a union of these two currents due to the fear of a serious fracture within the armed forces with the break in hierarchy and uprisings in the barracks. The military unity points towards the phase of culminating the state coup with the rupture of the constitutional order and the installment of the fascist military regime, which signals the division in the core of the establishment. The press monopolies at this moment are openly against Bolsonaro, daily accusing him of conspiring for the rupture of institutional order. The struggle that is shown in the press of the executive power with the so-called other powers, judiciary and legislative, is a smokescreen that hides the struggle of the fractions of the big bourgeoisie for the form of applying the three reactionary tasks imposed by the Yankees of saving the system of exploitation and oppression that is threatening to collapse. In other words, restructuring the old state for the maximum centralization of power in the executive, taking the economy out of crisis to fortify bureaucratic capitalism, and prevent the danger of revolution by smashing the people's revolt and annihilate the growing revolutionary movement. The palatial struggle is incessant. The high commands of the reactionary armed forces that oppose Bolsonaro, 
as a military government in fact occupies the main operative posts of the government, with the purpose of making the coup the smoothest possible under constitutional cover, through reforms of the current constitution, without rupture of the institutions, but centralizing power absolutely on the executive. Bolsonaro preaches and acts to establish an open and declared military regime. The generals see that as a great danger because it would form a broad anti-armed forces front. In the last 40 days, the situation has been aggravated with the fall of many ministers and division among the generals, and Bolsonaro going on the offensive, wielding Article 142 of the Constitution, which defines the role of the armed forces and the President of the Republic as their supreme commander. As said before, the country is in a slide of sharpening class struggle. Since the revolts of 2013 through 14, the class struggle in our country has entered a new cycle of increasingly bloody struggles, and reaction is increasing repression to the masses that are reacting with more bellicosity. The fascists are arming themselves, threatening and provoking. Rebellions are fermenting throughout the whole country. Red Spark. Thank you, comrades. Red Salute.